Hey, welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 71. Thank you so much to those of you who listened and wrote in to me after last week's podcast with Stephanie Tate. I know that really touched many of your hearts. It certainly touched my own heart. It was a special, special time. We talked about suffering and wholeness, uh, dignity for those with disabilities, and how people with chronic pain can be welcomed into your community and how your community can uh, do its best to ensure those who don't receive immediate healing in response to your prayers still feel welcomed and still feel safe to share their story in your community. So really, really special. Thank you to everyone once again who uh, who wrote to me after that one. This week is, a, is another really quite, quite special discussion. I had the honor of meeting Andrew and Noreen Brunson. Andrew Brunson was the pastor who was imprisoned in Turkey for two years. He's been out now for a bit over a year, and I got to sit down with them in person and, and hear their story, uh, how Andrew survived, how his faith survived, how he learned to stand in, in the dark, to feel utterly removed from the presence of God, to feel utterly alone, and to somehow in there develop a, a devotional approach to God where he, he would fight for uh, his intimacy with God each and every day. So I don't want to give away too much, obviously, but this was a special time getting to meet with them and, and share some space and, and hear their story from their own mouths. My apologies, the audio quality isn't incredible. We were in quite an echoey room, and I've done the best I can to clean up the audio, but uh, you'll you'll notice that my own portions are pretty quiet, so my, my apologies for that. Anyway, uh, I'll get out of the way, and uh, let's listen to Andrew and Noreen Brunson's story. What is life like now? I can't imagine that was a trivially easy transition to normalcy. Well, anything compared to what life was like is wonderful. And so I'm really enjoying life after prison. And what was really difficult about the time there, there were a number of difficulties. But if someone had told me it'll be two years and then you get out, then I would have just pressed in and held on and it would be difficult, but I would start counting the days. I did not know how long I would be in prison. The Turkish government uh, at one point asked for three life sentences in solitary confinement for me. And so I did not know if I'd ever be with my children again or be with my wife again. And so it was living with that uncertainty of, I don't know that I'll ever get out. And so... Uh, that was a very heavy thing. Uh, to be out of that, to be free again, to be, I can call my kids whenever I want to, uh, and I can, I'm with Noreen all the time. Uh, that's just wonderful. To be free again is is amazing. Now, there was, there was a transition, obviously, uh, and uh, there was a re- residual trauma that I had to uh, work through to some degree, but Actually, I'd received a lot of healing already. I was broken a great deal in the first year of prison. Uh, Came to the point of being suicidal and uh, had many questions and doubts. The second year, God began to rebuild me. I went through a rebuilding process with them so that I actually came out of prison relatively strong. And so there'd already been uh, a good deal of healing that 
took place uh, in that process of, of him rebuilding me. I'm not saying it was complete, uh, but so I, when I came out, I did have trauma, but it was uh, it didn't dominate. And so uh, it's been wonderful to be out. It's, uh, it's, it's great. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I don't want to go back to prison again. So. so where I still see the effects on him, I still see that he has problems with sleeping. Um, and of nightmares, I should say, not problems with sleeping, but problem with nightmares. And uh, the other day, I said, "How'd you sleep?" I asked most days, and oh, so I spent hours being pursued and <laughs> captured and trying to escape, and you know this kind of thing. So, yeah. so that has maybe been kept alive by uh, a combination of well, writing the book was good. I think it was good to kind of process and work through these things, get it down on paper, etc. It also brought things up. And uh, talking about it keeps it there, you know. So, I mean, that's okay. This is a, this is God's story. Right no, 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 no. It's it's God's story, and and uh, and it's our story. So, no, it's good. Um, but a combination of of those things probably uh, just leads to some of the nightmares. Yeah. So, have you been? able to like is there been a normal life or is it kind of like a, well now we're telling the story for 18 months straight since you're really well we have a new normal our, our normal before was uh ministry in turkey largest sure. unevangelized country in the world uh so noreen has often said uh there's never a dull day uh it wasn't always good but it was never dull uh, we were involved in church planting and uh, work with refugees a house of prayers and training uh, so we had a, a fulfilling uh, ministry there. Uh, in 2009, God had spoken to me and given an assignment, prepare for harvest, prepare for a powerful move of God. Uh, and so we were focused on that. I think that my imprisonment was actually serving that uh, assignment because there was an unprecedented prayer movement uh, that God raised up uh, focused on me. This is what I've been told by church historians, that they don't know of another movement like this. And so uh, I became aware while I was in prison. So God had given us the assignment, prepare for harvest, prepare for a move of God. And when we were arrested for deportation, I first I thought, well, this can't be because we're supposed to be here preparing yes. for harvest. Uh, has God, uh, has this assignment been canceled in some way? And then as my imprisonment dragged on and we became aware of this uh, prayer movement that was growing around the world, I started to see, oh, actually, God is using this. What was intended to harm me, yes. he's actually using it for good. And he's drawing in millions of his sons and daughters around the world to just pour prayer into this darkest region of the world. Mm -hmm. And this is preparation for harvest. So I came to see that my imprisonment was an assignment from God. So you asked, you know, how, what is, is life normal now? Well, it's a new normal uh, where we had a very clear objective before. We still have it, but I, but, and now in very different circumstances. And so I think God has taken us out of that ministry we had. We can't go back to Turkey at this point, although we would, we would love to go back. And he has new things ahead of us. But it's still focused on, on seeing his kingdom come in the Muslim world. So, yes, it is a transition time 
how can we do that? What is our part now outside of Turkey? Yes. Um, and that's what we're just waiting on God and praying into. Uh, but I do miss the, you know, God has good things ahead. Yes. But I do miss the uh, the clear assignment we had there. Um, as you said, it wasn't always easy, but there was clarity. And I had such a certainty in the years in Turkey. I, I will back up and say I didn't want to go there. Mm. I cried on the play on the way over because I felt my life was finished. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> However, God really tied my heart there within the first uh, three, four years. And I was so committed and uh, just had such a sense, yes, this is where we're supposed to be. That's a huge blessing. Yes. Not everybody has that in the situation they're in. And so... Um, we don't have that right now. We don't have as much clarity. We have sure. some pieces, and in time, God's going to just be leading us. But there was definitely a life there. There are people from there that we miss. I, I miss it terribly. Sure. Rhythms, familiarity. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to what's ahead because, yes. uh, you know, God took us through something, and, and he used it. You know, so many people who experience persecution, uh, they're certainly going to be rewarded. God values it so highly because uh, it's being done for his sake, for the sake of Jesus. And it's one of the ways that we demonstrate his supremacy, his great worth, when if we're willing to undergo persecution and suffering for his sake, it, it is a testimony to his great worth. He is wor worthy of this, and he is worth it as well. I'm willing to do this because of who he is. So uh, those people will be rewarded. God highly values it, but we've been given the privilege of seeing some of the results of it in our own lives. Yes. Uh, and many people will just see it in heaven, whereas I can actually see some of the things that came from it. So what was intended to harm me and was intended for evil, yes. God turned it around and leveraged it for the kingdom and is bringing great good out of it. Yes. And one of the things, so there are many things we've seen him bring out of it, and I think that will continue, but one of the things is just that there's been, uh, even in the last year, there's been an increase in the number of people, young people coming into churches in Turkey. Yes. Not just, you know, a number of churches all over the country. Wow. And uh, so there's been a real increase in the number of seekers and people mm -hmm. making professions of faith. So they come in and say, I... I don't know what I believe, but I, I know that I'm not a Muslim. I don't want to be a Muslim anymore. And so they come in seeking and asking for prayer. And several churches have told us we, that they tie this directly to all of the prayer uh, that poured into Turkey uh, it, because of our situation. So huge encouragement to us. Yeah, wow. It's like, I got, I got a picture as you say that, you know, it's like you take a big bucket of water and you try and pour it on a tiny little dot. Well, it's just going to splash everywhere. So all this prayer is being that's a, poured out on That's a on great you, way to illustrate yes, like, yeah. over this entire nation. Yes. At some point, I had a sense that, yes, people are praying for Andrew, but there's in some sense, whether they're specifically praying for Turkey or not, that God is using it for Turkey. Mm. And that was a great illustration that you just gave. So what I've said before is I rode a wave of prayer out of Turkey, yes. but a tsunami of prayer crashed into Turkey. Right. How long were you in Turkey? We were there 23 years okay. by choice and two years by force. Yes. So just over 25 years. So I don't know how old you are, but I'm saying that's... I'm 52 now. That's your career. <laughs> yes. That's, yes. yes. That's your life. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. And, you know, we, had, we anticipated being there until the end. 
Were the kids born there or here? Or two of our boys were, yeah, two of our kids were born there. Our sons were born there. And our kids were raised there. They went to Turkish schools. Uh, We uh, expected, as I said, we had that assignment to prepare for harvest. And I I fully expect that there will be a great move of God in that country uh, in our lifetime. So we thought that we would be there to see it in person. And maybe we will be. (laughs) But uh, so we had no anticipation of leaving. It was a it was a complete surprise to us when when we were arrested. Yeah, you get that sense from the book that you're blindsided. You know, I appreciated you honestly walking the reader through. Okay, well, it seems like this is what's going to happen. Nope. Okay, it seems like this is what's going. And it was. I, I obviously I wasn't there, but I I did feel that you invited us quite intimately into the present tense, mm-hmm. moment by moment, kind of. Wave after wave after wave. The verse that became my theme verse in prison was Isaiah 50, uh, verse 10, chapter 50, verse 10, which goes something like this. Uh, For the one who walks, who is walking in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of his God and lean on him. And uh, that's how I felt a lot of the time that I was in the dark and I was having to learn how to stand in the dark. So God is saying in that verse, he's saying to Israel, who was in exile, uh, they were in darkness. And he didn't say, oh, you're in darkness. Let me give you some light. He's actually saying, so you're in darkness. So now it's time to trust in the name of your God and to lean on him. So he didn't remove uh, their difficult situations at that time. And so that's how I felt is I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, there's so much uncertainty. I don't know if I'll ever get out. I'm in the dark. And this is when I have to just lean in to God. Yeah. And that's not that's not a leaning in from emotion. Sure. It's not, I didn't feel good. I wasn't happy. I didn't feel joy. I had no sense of certainty. People say, oh, you just were trusting God. Well, I, I haven't figured trust out. Uh, what was I to trust him for? Usually when we say that we trust God, we're, we're actually trusting for a specific outcome. And I couldn't do that. Uh, there was no verse uh, that said, Andrew, you're going to get out of prison. Or Andrew, you're going to survive this. So what could I hold on to? And so it became much more of a an intentional Focusing on God and saying, I am going to lean into you, even though I'm in the darkness and I don't know what's coming or how this will be resolved. I need to learn to stand in the dark. Wow. I feel like we don't want to do that. I, I, I think. No, I didn't like want to do not, it either. Well, I mean, aside from the obvious suffering, like, <clears throat> I feel like we're not perhaps super well prepared in the West, in the church in the West for, for that kind of framework. Am I off base? Do you no, feel? I, I don't think that we are prepared. This is one of the, I have a real sense of urgency, especially for the next generation, for my children's age. You know, they're 24, 22, 18. And I don't think that my generation is prepared to suffer persecution either, but at least we have a, a big head start as far as our walk with God. Uh, but the younger generation, I think of the increasing hostility uh, toward those who stand publicly for Jesus, or not even publicly, but who take a who identify clearly uh, with Jesus and His teaching, 
and I think there's a there's increasing hostility, and it will be increasingly uh, costly to take that stand. I don't think many people are prepared for that. We had there's not that expectation in this part of the world. Yeah. Sure. So we had counted the cost in Turkey. There were threats uh, over the years. I had been attacked once by a gunman. So there were there were some things that we went into. For example, working on the Syrian-Turkish border with refugees where there was a, a level of risk. And we evaluated that and we went in saying, we're counting this cost. We're the first, well, I'm the first person who's been in prison in Turkey, uh, certainly as a missionary uh, for his faith. And so we didn't count that as part of the cost. So how does one prepare for persecution? One of the main ways to do it. I don't know how much you can prepare your heart for what you're going to suffer until you're actually going through it. You don't know what your emotions will be, how you'll react. And I thought I would be much stronger than I was from the biographies I'd read. Uh, you know, I, I see, you know, these very strong believers who go through difficulties. And, and I thought that I would be like that. But I didn't sense strength. I had pursued God's presence for years. And, uh, his presence was so important to me, and it still is. But that was removed from me for those two years of prison. Mm. So this was what really surprised me. It shocked me because I thought, well, I've read about other people. I've heard about others. And, you know, they had this sense of joy, of strength, a sense of grace that was over them. And it was difficult, but man, they also had God's presence. And I thought, God, I've been pursuing your presence for years, and I've had experiences of your presence. Why would you remove that sense in my most difficult time. And that's really what uh, I knew that persecution could come. And I knew that what was happening to me was persecution. I didn't like it. But as part of my worldview, part of my, my uh, mindset that, yes, I can now interpret this because it is persecution. What really shocked me was, Lord, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of my difficulties, where are you? And so... How can you prepare yourself for that? Well, there are a couple of things that one can do. But the, the thing that I think is most important to be going with is a, is a framework, which is to say persecution is a possibility. It can happen. And if we begin to, Jesus warned us that if we don't have that as part of our mindset, if we don't expect it, then when it comes, it blindsides us. And then there are some things that can happen. First of all, we can be overwhelmed with fear. And when you're overwhelmed with fear, and I've become an expert on fear, <laughs> it's when I was overwhelmed with fear, the, I, the reaction was, I want to run. And it took me about a year in prison before I got to the point where I would say consistently. I said it during the first year, but where I could say it consistently, mm -hmm. God, I'm willing to remain in prison if this is what serves your purposes. Mm -hmm. But it took me about a year uh, of really struggling to that point. And so if we... And it was still a struggle. It was still a struggle. It was still a daily struggle. But at least yeah. consistently, yeah. consistently, I was every day fighting to get to that point. Yes. Uh, you know, I'd say I'd wake up in the morning with fear and dread, and I'd start fighting through, okay, God, I want to submit my will to you. If this is, if this is going to serve your purposes, then give me the strength to endure because I can't on my own. Yeah. Give me the strength to endure and to be faithful. 
And by evening, I'd usually reach a point of peace, the highest point of peace I could get in prison. And then the next morning, I'd wake up with the same fear and the same anxiety and, and discouragement and have to start that battle over again. So yesterday's victory did not carry over uh, in a significant way to the next day. So then there was the need to uh, fight through again. Now, there's an upward trajectory over time, so it never became easy. Uh, but that became my goal. So one of the things, if we're not prepared for persecution, then when fear comes, we're going to run away. And one of the things we need to do is set an anchor where we say a foundation where we say, this is where I will stand. I will not turn away from Jesus. I will follow him even in difficulty and just get our mindset so that when fear comes and we do want to run away, we say no. And so uh, if we're not prepared, we can also be deceived more easily. We'll look for teachers who will uh, help us to justify compromise. Uh, we can be offended at God uh, by what he does or doesn't do. And this was one of the big things that I struggled with is my offense toward, toward God. Uh, that first year especially. Where is your presence? Why aren't you speaking to me? Feel like you've abandoned me and turned me over to be savaged here. And, and uh, why am I not getting, uh, you know, speak to me in dreams, give me your voice, give me your presence, all these things. And I came to realize uh, I was asking a lot of questions of God, but he had questions for me. You know, Andrew, are you going to be faithful? Andrew, are you going to love me even when you don't sense my presence, even when you have doubts, are you going to remain faithful to me? So it wasn't God's love and God's uh, faithfulness that were being put to the test. They never are. He is constant. It was my faithfulness and my love that was being put to the test. And as I became aware of this, then I became more determined. I'm going to, I'm going to fight for my relationship with God. So there is a need to prepare our mindset, to even have it, that's the beginning, just even having the mindset of this can happen and I'm going to make the decision now that I'm going to be faithful. I struggle relationally, theologically. Why, why does God or would God, like is it, is it like a test that we pass or fail? Is it like revealing our character to ourselves? Like where do you go with like, so you can write books about this, right? It's a sure. big, it's a big <laughs> subject. Uh, I don't believe that God causes all our difficulties, sure. but in the He uses our difficulties, the circumstances we're in, to test us. God does test His children, and when I look at some of the friends of God in the Bible, uh, they went through periods of the silence of God, periods of uncertainty. And I think that it was, it was going through these things that actually uh, brought them to the point where they could be friends of God. And so there's, uh, I don't know why I did not, I don't know why God had to or decided not to give me a sense of his presence for two years in the most difficult time. I, I still don't understand it. I do see some of the results. And one of them was this tested love. You know, I go through now and I say, yes, my love and faithfulness were tested and they were proved genuine. And this gives me a, a different kind of confidence in my relationship with God. Yes. This is tested, proven love. Yes. You can say my love can be completely sincere and true. Yes. 
But until it's been tested, it isn't proven. And so I, I think of Abraham or David or Moses or different people like that who who went through those difficulties, they come out of them still trusting God, still walking with Him, and that kind of positions you so that then you can uh, receive more from Him. God deals with us so individually, but I think that in uh, your case, that His silence was part of the test for you. I remember a friend saying this years ago, sometimes God is silent during the test. We're taking a test and he's not <laughs> he's mm. silent. Um, I think that was the case for you, not for everybody. So God does test. And one of the, the turning point for me, uh, there were several things involved in, in this turning point, but I had really been broken uh, for months and I was suicidal and I'd try to fight my way back to God and then something would happen and I'd get really discouraged again. And uh, But there, there was a turning point where I'd read about how many Christians go into the Valley of Testing. The Valley of Testing is full of skeletons and dry bones of Christians who have not survived. Now, they may still go to heaven, but the, the issue is their relationship with God hasn't survived. And they've lost their friendship with God. And they, they then lead lives that have very little fruit. And I, it, this just hit me, and I thought, oh, God, you know, here, I've, I've served you for 23 years in Turkey, and I've come to a point where my relationship is just, it's, is completely uh, suffocated, not completely, but almost to that point. And, and I made a decision, I am going to fight for my relationship with you. So I came, I thought, I don't want to be one of those skeletons. I, I want to survive this testing. Now, it can sound very brutal. Why is God doing that? As I said, I, I'm not saying that God is the one who causes all these difficulties. But he does use those testing periods. And when you're being tested, it's so important that you make it through the test. And what was knocking me out especially was a, I, it was offense toward God. And there were a couple of things I did that dealt with offense. One, I, I made the decision and I said to God almost defiantly, which is, is a silly thing, but I was like, whatever you do, God, whatever you do or don't do, I will follow you. It's like, you're going to see, even if you don't speak to me, I'm still going to follow you. Even if you don't give me your presence, you'll see, I'm going to follow you. And it was like a determination you haven't given me your voice, you haven't given me your presence, but I'm going to hold on. Now, even at my, at my strongest point, my strongest strength is still pretty weak, still pretty pitiful. But God, I think he loves it when we, when we press in. And, and he met me there, and that just invited his, his, uh, his grace in a different way. And so I, I, I call it, I began cooperating with God's grace in a sense. But it was a decision I am going to, I'm determined, intentional about hanging on to you. And a second thing that was very important was I, I visualized a lockbox and uh, just in my imagination. I visual, visualized it and I took all of these questions and doubts and I put them into the box. So I, I just visualized, I'm putting these into the box. I'm putting it in and then I closed the, the lock. And this, in my, in my mind, this was a, a high, uh, high tech, uh, box, you know, and it had a, a hand, digital handprint. And so I just put my handprint on it and said, God, the only one who can open this box is you and me. I can open it. You can open it. 
you can open it if you want to. If you want to deal with these things uh, that I'm going through that I, I can't figure out, then then go ahead. But I make the decision that I will not open this box. I will not entertain these doubts and questions anymore. I make the decision that I do not need to have answers to have a relationship with you. So those doubts and questions were suffocating me before. I felt that I could not receive truth. So Noreen would come in. We we had a visit. It became a a regular thing once a week uh, for 35 minutes in one prison. Then they put me in a maximum security prison. And there I had one hour a week. And this was gold to me. And that was the only contact I had with a believer. So Noreen would come in and she she had this this pressure, this weight that she had to come in and deal with her husband who's, you know, just falling apart and, and come in and encourage me. And sometimes she would speak truth to me because I I had all these questions and I didn't have anybody else who could correct me. Sure. And I, and had I all- will just say that I didn't have the answers either. Sure. <laughs> you know, I didn't have the clear truth to bring into it so you know we're speaking through you know reinforced glass with with bars and then and and on a telephone and that was our contact and she would uh she would speak to me and she would speak truth to me and sometimes correct what i was saying but i couldn't receive it uh and when i'd read the bible part of the time i was i was they held me in four to five different places and some places i could have a bible some places i couldn't but when I did have the Bible, I'm, I was really in a, I just had a hard time receiving, receiving truth. It's because I would say, yes, but, yes, but, because the doubts, the questions, the, the hurt, the offense would come in. And so when I put those in that box and I made that decision, yes, of course, after that, I, you know, those thoughts would still come to my mind, those doubts, but I would say, no. <laughs> yes, I still have them. I still have doubts and questions, but no, I will not entertain these thoughts and I'd go back to that box and it was a decision that then I was being suffocated my relationship with God was being strangled and that opened it up so I could begin to receive again now he didn't give me a sense of his presence after this I didn't suddenly feel strength and joy I didn't throughout my whole time in prison but what it did is it opened it up so that I'm now I'm now committed I'm determined. I'm going to fight for that relationship with God. And come on, man. Yes. And, and the, the, I'm going to put aside offense as much as possible. And that's what, those are some of the things that changed my time in prison from just continual brokenness to very, very difficult and still brokenness, but, but on an upward trajectory where God was, began to heal me. Uh, of some things and to rebuild me so that I actually came out stronger at the end. So knowing how low he was at many points, you know, I could see these were clear victories. Someone outside might think, oh, that's a small victory. Knowing the circumstances and how, you know, in the despair that he was in, for him to be saying or writing some of the things that he wrote, I say, wow, this is victory. This is victory. This is big. It, it sounds to me like some form of purification. I'm sure everybody's looking to analyze your experience and put a bow on it, put a label in it, be like, hmm, it's like this. Well, I was just reading a verse, you know, he who is suffering the body is, 
you know, is <laughs> basically done with sin. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but there is, it does tend to uh, focus. It focused me on what is really most important. We'll take a quick break to give a shout out to my Patreon supporters. I want to thank Carmen. She's my latest patron, and she brings my total supporters to 51 a month, which is really a really wonderful blessing. Friends, I need 300 to cover my portion of the family expenses. We have been literally trusting God to pay <laughs> for our mortgage for uh, maybe even a year now, and God is faithfully doing so. So if you're in a difficult financial position, then continue to trust God. He is faithful. And if you're in a position where you're able to give and sow into my work, I, I would really appreciate it. $3 a month will get you onto my Patreon. Uh, anything else that you're able to give is a, is a blessing as well. It goes to keep this show on the air and keep my writing and pastoral work, my, my sewing into my local community, my kids' pastoral work is all volunteer. So you are uh, furthering the kingdom of God here in Guelph and, and in this country and around the world as those uh, listen, tune into the show. So thanks for considering that. If you'd like to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle or go to the show notes and click the link there. Thanks so much. I remember someone, actually, John Arnott from Catch the Fire told, had told me about uh, meeting a man named Richard Vermbrandt, yes. uh, who was a pastor in Romania who was imprisoned and tortured for 14 years. And Vermbrandt had talked with John and told him, you know, John, sometimes I miss, I miss that cell. You know, uh, he was in solitary confinement for part of his time. He said, I, I just miss that cell and the communion I had with God, his presence. And I thought, what's wrong with that guy? You know, that <laughs> that's crazy. Well, this was before I went to prison. And then I spent a lot of time in prison with Richard Vermbrandt because, you know, he became one of my, my models and heroes. And I can say now that I'm out, I have no desire to go back to prison. But I do miss something from that time because going back to what you were saying, does it purify? Well, what it did is I became the things that caused so much hardship for me. They actually pushed me. Uh, to to focus on God just for survival. Uh, it was physical survival in one sense because I, I had been suicidal, but also just spiritual survival. I was so driven uh, to press into God, to focus on Him throughout the day that uh, it was my whole day revolved around and my night just pressing into God. So there was an intensity there that yes. was driven by fear and loneliness and despair driving me to God. Well, now that I'm removed from those circumstances and I don't have that intense experience going on, sure. then the natural tendency that we have is not to grow in uh, devotion and love for God, it's to decrease. And so the things that drove me are, are gone now. Are, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm missing that uh, just dependence, the, the drive to focus myself on God throughout the day. I don't have that now, and I miss it. I don't want to go back <laughs> to those circumstances, but I see what could be, and that was that had a the uncertainty, the the suffering, the all of those things had a. They focused me on my walk with God, what really matters, and they really focused me on heaven. And I became I, I began to. I, I wrote a song while I was in prison. 
And the circumstances were important because I had just been told by the Turkish government that they wanted three life sentences in solitary confinement with no parole. So this is the rest of my life on my own, sure. isolated in a, in a terrible situation, circumstances. And a couple, that really knocked me down. Oh, yeah. I felt like a death sentence. A couple of weeks after that, I was just pacing back and forth and, and, and crying out to God, just my emotions, just this, this dread, this, you know, this real sense of loss, this sense of loss of my family and of freedom. And then what I said is, you know, you are worthy, worthy of my all. You're worthy of my pain, my tears, my suffering. You're worthy of this. And there's a, a, a verse in the song that goes, I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets from cowardice or things left undone. And this became my prayer. I, I sang that song every day uh, after, after that as a declaration. It was a, a love song, a, a song of dedication, of surrender, uh, of declaration of the things that I, I was doubting and that now I was declaring the goodness, faithfulness, love of God. But it was also something that focused me on, I'm living for that day when I stand before Jesus. And saying, I want to stand before you without regrets. And I want you to say, Andrew, I had assignments for you. There, there were assignments I had for you to complete. There was an inheritance that I had for you in this life. And you lost it because you were a coward or because you were unfaithful. And how, how terrible that would be. And I started to, and I said, I don't want to be in prison. I don't want to be here. I just so desire to be back with my family. But I, I, if you have assignments for me, I don't want a single one of them to, to be, to be uncompleted. How would you say that? To, to, to fall to the ground. I want to complete every assignment you have for me. And so I fought for that. And this was every day focusing myself, basically focusing myself on, on eternity. That's what I'm living for. I'm going to stand before you. And I want to do that without regrets. So it's, you know, your salvation is not an issue here. It's really like the, there's a, like a fullness that you're wanting every last drop. Yeah, and it, it took me a while to get there. I'll tell you, just to be very open about it. So I've worked in Turkey 23 years. We, we had risk. We had difficulties. It was a hard ministry. But we, we invested ourselves in it, poured ourselves into it. I... When at, at a very broken point in my first year, I said, God, I just renounce it all. Whatever my inheritance is, I renounce it. Just let me get out of this prison and go back to my family. Whatever else you have planned for me, any other assignments, I don't want them. I just want to go back with my family. I can't handle this anymore. Which I feel like is really understandable. Yeah. Said, you chose the wrong man. I just am too weak. I can't handle it. Yeah. And I'm willing to be the, the least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't care. And so months later, what a different thing I'm declaring every Seriously? day. Wow. I want to stand before you without regret. I want mm -hmm. to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets from cowardice or things left undone. Yeah. So I repent of that. And I say, no, I don't want, I want every single assignment to be completed. Every one of them. So there was a change from, from total despair and, and basically giving up uh, my inheritance, all the labor, and to say, no, I want it all. I want it all. I think of the way I finished. I had just gone through my third trial, period, my third trial session, and it was just a disaster. It's, it's a kangaroo court, and I, they didn't care about truth. It was from the very top of the Turkish government. They were the, 
the, the president was determining what would happen. It was it had been completely politicized. And so I was in despair about this. And I read something, I read John 18.12, I think it's John 18.12, where uh, Peter says, you know, Jesus, you don't need to go ahead with this. Don't, don't go to... And, and Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And it's a rhetorical question. And that just, that, that Jesus' word, shall I not drink the cup? And it just echoed in my mind just for the next few days, again and again and again. And I... I said, I, I need to drink the cup. I need to be willing to drink the cup. And I wrote a letter to Noreen. And I said, in, in this letter, I was just basically writing out a prayer. I want to drink the cup down to the dregs. I want to drink it completely. Whatever cup you have for me, I want to drink it completely. Oh, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can handle it. God, oh, please let me go. But no, I need to drink the cup. I want to drink the cup down to the last dregs. And I, I sealed that letter up and I, I sent it. The very next day, suddenly, uh, they came in and said, Andrew, gather your things. We're releasing you to house arrest. So I'd been in prison almost two years. Now they were releasing me to yeah. be under house arrest. And I was like, oh, oh God, thank you. Uh, that that's the point that I finished yes. on yes. was one of surrender. I could have finished off on a terrible thing where I'm, you know, oh, God, you know, I just give it all up again. No, I don't, you know, <laughs> forget it. God. No, but it, it wasn't. It was, it was, yes, I'll drink the cup. Wow. Now, that's a daily decision, yes. okay? This, is, this was a daily battle, yes. but that was what I was aiming for, and God let me finish on that note. Mm -hmm. Then I went to house arrest and was there, held there for two months, and it, that was very stressful uh, in its own way, uh, but I, I did come out with that focus on I want to serve God's purposes rather than my own. Yeah. And that took a lot of discipline over time, building that deep into me. Yes. Thank you. It's, it's incredible. I'm just thinking, like, like, surely, in His grace, the Lord would have welcomed you in whatever state you left that prison. But the gift of drawing you back to a, a place of even of personal dignity for you, for that loop in your life. Yeah, something that's in... If you've read the book, you may remember that in May of 2017, so about eight months or so uh, uh, into the imprisonment, President Trump asked for his release. And there were reasons, apart from that, things that the Lord had been showing to think that the release would happen at that point. It didn't. It was a huge disappointment. It led to a real, uh, just a real despair in him. Another suicidal period. Hard things. Start of medication, etc. But um, as much as we wanted the release at that time, now as we look back, we see okay, he was held another seventeen months. But all that God did during that time, and one of those, as you said, was to bring him to a much a much deeper place of surrender. Yes. Um, so that was just one of the many things that God accomplished. God extended the time and did a lot with it. So something I've said, you know, we were held together for 13 days. And Noreen and I were held in a detention center at the beginning. Yes. So she got a taste of this. Uh, although what I went on to experience was more intense because then I was alone. Uh, but she got a taste of it. And what I've said before is, you know, 
Noreen spent 13 days. God had to keep me another two years to finish <laughs> off what he wanted to do in my life. <laughs> but you know, when we look back on it. So, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> but more, more seriously, as I, as I look back on it, I, I see how God took what was intended for evil and turned it around. Yes. And Noreen told me in the process, it was very hard for me to receive this in the time, sure. but she said, if we, if we go through this in a right way, we will not regret the outcome. And wow. she didn't know when she was saying this, what that outcome would be. It could be years down the road, but she was saying. Most of the time I thought that he would be, that there would be a release, that God had given us promises and things that he would do that could only be accomplished outside of prison. Sure. So I thought that at some point, most likely there would be a release, but could that be two years? Could it be five years? Could it be 10, 15? Yes. Who knows? That those promises could be fulfilled in my 70s, you know, and I could, you know, spend 15 to 20 years in a prison if, if I could hang on for that long. So there was there was no guarantee. And but as we as I look back, I say, yes, what she said was true uh, because of how we finished. Then we look back and we say we don't have regrets. And I see how God used this. And I say, I'm. Thank you, God, that you took me to Turkey 20, well, that I was there 25 years. Thank you for that. We wouldn't change that, even though we went through a great, great difficulty and I was severely tested. I wouldn't change it. God, uh, God used this and we have no regrets. We can look back and say, yes, Lord, we have no regrets. And I actually, I thank God that he didn't release me, uh, earlier on. Oh, I, I really want, I wish I hadn't had spent so much time there, but, but I'm glad that he didn't give me the option of running away when I would have run away. Because what he accomplished and what he changed in me over, over that progression as he began to rebuild was so important. And so I'm glad that he didn't give me that option. Yes, wow. Wow. Lorraine, can I ask your, your days? What did your, what did the boring details of your day look like? Yeah, my time became focused completely on his, on him. Um, there was ministry. There were other things that were going on. I had kids in the States. So those were things there too, but he was the priority. Um, so this is new, uncharted, uncharted territory. How, who do you contact? How do you go about something like this? Um, I just... Tried to follow up every lead that I could, cast out in every direction. Mm -hmm. And I found that um, there were, God has people in all kinds of places that maybe we don't expect it, mm -hmm. in government or just in, in unusual places. And um, this was really seeing the body at work. The prayer was what fueled the whole thing. But then I saw how God had just... God had laid out so many pieces ahead of time, some things even years before, that then we he came to used see that for his release. He's the grandmaster chess player. You know, I, I thought, where are you in this God? What's happening? And then as we look back, we begin to see how he, so many things were prepared ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Everything from this Secretary of State 
Mike Pompeo being part of the denomination that we had transferred, he had transferred his ordination into, things like that, that we could never have known, of course. So I I pursued diplomatic things wherever I could. Uh, I started some groups that focus on persecution of Christians started to contact me, and then I was trying to figure out how does this work, can they work together, et cetera, a lot of questions. Um, Keeping the prayer going for him trying to write to him or when I could or trying to get in to visit him. So really so much was focused um, on him and he had a concern that I would somehow go back to normal life. And I said, if you could just see how I spend my days and how my mind, how I'm always thinking about you and always mindful see, of the, you. The issue is that you wouldn't have that. Concern. And I think other prisoners have the same thing. There's uh, first, there's a lot of uh, attack, uh, you know, mental, sure. uh, f- uh, spiritual attack. And one of the things is you'll be forgotten. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to be here in Norway. We'll go back to a normal life and kind of just, you know, go on and, and enjoy life without me. And I'm stuck in here and I'll be forgotten. And I know that that's not true, but it, it keeps nagging. It's a spiritual attack. And you've got nothing else to do but sit around all day and think the worst thoughts. Yes. And, you know, she told me, she said, my life is, cannot be normal. I can't go back to normal life if you're not around. We will and go I back. don't want to. We'll go back yeah. to normal life together. I said, please keep telling me this. <laughs> it sounds, sounds pitiful, but I said, I just need to hear this. And yeah. so she would often tell me, you know, I'm, I'm not going back to normal. I'm waiting for you. Yeah. I love you. Uh, you know, I'm here. Things just repeating some of these things again and again and again. Because for the person who's shut up, who's completely cut off of contact and doesn't know what's going on, it's a very different, uh, it's just a different condition to be in. Sure. And so, you know, it was good to just keep repeating. Sometimes yes. as I'm writing something, something, I keep saying this, I keep saying this, but no problem. I will do it happily. Yes. And it, this is one of the things to emphasize is one of the main difficulties of the imprisonment. So m- most of the time I was in, in high security prisons or, or a maximum security prison. There, There's no contact with the outside world. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had the one visit, you know, weekly uh, that Noreen, Noreen had to apply for permission to the capital of the country every week to get that permission. So a lot of times yeah. I didn't know if she'd have it or not. Sure. That, that was the only contact. And so there was a real sense of isolation. Some of the times when I was, when I was, had the most difficult time and was closest to suicide is when that contact was cut off completely. And so I have no contact with Noreen, with anybody else. I'm just in a cell either by myself in isolation or else. Uh, part of the time I was in a cell built for eight people with over 20 of us there. It was very crowded, very intense. And the, the isolation of, in a sense of my faith. So I'm isolated by culture and language right. and life experience, uh, nationality, but I was the only Christian and I was surrounded by Muslims. They're all very strong Muslims. The people I was kept with were, uh, were there because they were accused of being part of a, an Islamist group that, uh, the Turkish government said was behind a coup attempt. So they were all very strong Muslims and, Uh, I was in that spiritual environment where they were praying constantly, 24-7, prayers, chanting of the Quran and things like that. And I had no one I could go to to ask my questions or, you know, my doubts or who would correct me. And so that sense of isolation. And so my Noreen was so important 
because she was the only Christian I had contact with during those two years to come in and encourage me uh, and give truth, speak truth to me. So what she did was, she was really my lifeline. Uh, I like to think that God would have done something else to keep me going if she had been deported, because she should have been deported. She was arrested to be deported, and then they released her and let her stay in the country. It was never clear if they they would make her leave or not, Uh, but she was able to stay there and be that lifeline for me and that encouragement that kept me going. Now, she also stayed at personal risk because a number of leaders told her, you need to leave Turkey because they could put her in in prison, but she stayed. And uh, what a love story uh, that she, she placed herself at risk to minister to me. So people ask me, you know, were you tortured? I say, no, there was nothing physical they did to me. You know, there were at times I thought it might turn to that. Uh, There was something, you know, they moved me from that crowded cell eventually to to a maximum security prison where they kept me with fewer prisoners because I think there was increasing tension, uh, especially as my case became more visible. And they accused me of all kinds of terrible things that the people I was in my cell with. They knew I wasn't an Islamist, which I'd been accused of as being an Islamist terrorist. But they, other things, they, they came out in the newspapers and TV. They, some of them, I think, were wondering, <laughs> is he really a spy? Maybe he does hate Turks. Maybe he, you know, all kinds of things. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> what would you say to me, to my generation and younger I discover I'm no longer the young generation either. Uh, you've spoken about not feeling prepared. You've talked about this refining process, you know, that of, of the Lord being enough and being worthy. You know, what, what do you want your children and your grandchildren to, to learn, to know, to not have to endure the hard way? Yeah, I, well, they may endure difficult things, and I, I, I would like them not to. I, there are some people who say, oh, persecution is great, at, you know, it, and I think, well, it, it does purify the church, but sometimes it wipes out the church. And so it, it's, it, it doesn't always have good results. Uh, sometimes uh, it doesn't build the church. Sometimes persecution is so intense that, that the church disappears. Uh, it's not that they, the church was uh, was unfaithful. It's that it's just it can be very very intense persecution can do that. So I don't want people to come under persecution. I think there is going to be more persecution. You need to have that mentality that yes, it can come, and I'm going to determine now that I'll be faithful. And the way to prepare for it is first to be aware that it can happen, so it doesn't blindside it. Then it's preparing the heart. And there, there are two things that, uh, that I think are, are critical to surviving persecution. And the first is focus on the relationship with God. Focus on intimacy with Him. So it, is, it was my love for God and the intimacy built up over years that fueled my perseverance over time. It was very difficult. It was severely tested. But I think that uh, it was... My love for God that, that, that helped me to bring my mindset around, which was not a matter of emotions, but of the will to say, you are worthy, you are worth this, I'm going to seek your face, I will be faithful to you, and I will love you 
even if I have doubts and questions. So that is that comes from a relationship of love. It's not all emotional at that point when it's being tested, but there, I think that what will drive, what will feel perseverance is that intimacy and love for God. So that's something that needs to be cultivated. As I said before, it's not something that we naturally do, grow in love. You have to go after it. And I actually think that it, for years I had run after intimacy with God. And I think in one sense that that is what positioned me so that God gave me this prison assignment because he knew that even though I would be severely tested and falter, that I would turn to him because my heart belongs to him. There, there, there was a true and sincere cultivated love and devotion for him. And uh, this is what, in prison, I, I say, what I, at first I thought the most important thing is, is presence of God. And now I'd say, I still love God's presence, but now I'd say the, the thing that was most important for me, that was underlined for me, was to have a faithful devotion, a, a very simple devotion. I'm, I don't understand. I don't know what's happening but I'm just going to hold on and devote myself to you. The second thing is, uh, so the first is cultivating that devotion and love for God. The second is developing that mindset, which is a fear of God, you could call it, or a heavenly mindset, which I talked about before, which is saying, I'm living for the day I stand before Jesus. And because I did this again and again and day after day after day and focused myself on that, that began to give me a different perspective on what I was suffering. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's hard. I don't know how it will end. I feel really weak, but I'm putting my eyes on Jesus and I'm living for that day. Mm -hmm. And so those are that, that fear of God, that realigning of priorities, mm -hmm. of perspective. When there's a threat that you'll lose your job, I don't think most people will end up going to prison for their faith. But the threat now is that you'll be marginalized or silenced or kicked out of your job if you, if you have any biblical values. Who are you going to fear more? God or the Twitter mob? And so if you cultivate that perspective that says what really matters is what God says about me, I'm going to stand before him and I want to stand before him without regret. I want to be faithful to him then that gives a different perspective when you are making decisions about suffering. Yes. Yes. That's good. Thank you. Would you pray for us, both of you, as this space of making those decisions? Yeah. I'd like to pray for your listeners what I prayed for myself and for my family uh, many, many times in prison. I, I prayed many things, but there was one prayer that I often prayed. So, Father God, I ask you to pour out on your sons and daughters the courage, the strength, the confidence, the endurance, perseverance, and steadfastness of Jesus, that we may run the race set before us and finish well, a beautiful bride purified in the fires of faithful obedience, tested and found worthy of her beloved, of Jesus, the King of glory. And Lord, I pray for those listening right now, and I ask that you would bring them near and that they would draw close to you and that they would devote themselves to staying close to you for all their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow. 
I was really, really impacted by spending time with them, their sincerity of their love of God, the, uh, you know, very few of us have experienced what Andrew's experienced. And so getting to, to learn, to listen, to hear uh, what goes through a man's mind and soul and, and spirit in a trial like that, uh, I felt very privileged. So thank you to Andrew and Noreen. Andrew's book is available. It's called God's Hostage, A True Story of Persecution, Imprisonment, and Perseverance. Uh, if you check the show notes, you'll find a link to buy it on Amazon. And uh, yeah, I recommend you go and check out the book. It's not uh, it's not rainbows and unicorns, you know, praise God for meeting me in prison. It's, it's a real and raw story of Andrew's daily struggle. Uh, so, but it provides a, a powerful insight to those who may have a sense in their spirit that they may enter a season of, of profound persecution and suffering like that. So thank you once again, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Please share the show if it blessed you. Uh, find me on social media at Jonathan Puddle, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And uh, glad to have you with us. We'll see you again next week.